So it's 1975, Christmas Eve. Tommy Ziegler is just kind of your average guy. You know, he's a successful family business, nice family, great wife. You know, as happy as you could think anyone possibly could be before, you know, getting into one of the most terrible scrapes you could ever imagine. It pretty much untangles the lives of half of this small town in Florida and this um, tumultuous moment in the crime scene itself was a mess. Four people ended up dead in a furniture store with the lights off at different times during the evening. He goes to his family furniture store with his good friend and employee, Edward Williams, and he says that he's attacked by someone in the dark. And he's knocked out for all he knows, and he's shooting, and he doesn't really know what's going on. And he wakes up, you know, tries to call for help, and he later finds that his wife and his in-laws were killed along with another man named Charlie Mays. Tommy Ziegler is rushed off to the hospital, went in for emergency surgery, and later booked for murder. Well, in 1976, he was convicted of murdering those four people. The jury sentenced him to life in prison, and the judge overruled that, and he got death. It's so hard to sum it up all in one sitting, you know, because there's so many different moving parts, and there's so much new evidence that has come up that kind of questions the state's theory that, you know, Ziegler killed these people for money or for life insurance or what have you, right? Which means that our investigation was not an obvious one. It wasn't exactly clear, well, okay, this is clearly where we need to go because there's this smoking gun situation where you think we can follow up on. It was more, let's try to view all this evidence in the aggregate because there's just so much of it and then see where um, we could maybe contribute by, by looking into things. And so um, I think the overall theme for the case since that first week has been, um, what do we think we know and why? Um, as simple as that, I, I think that there are a lot of things in the case that were assumed to be true, um, just because they were said in a, in a court setting, but um, as journalists, uh, we aren't advocates. You know, we don't operate only in a um, judicial or, or a court kind of setting. It's not always about just taking people at their word, it's about you know, double-checking your sources, making sure that the information that you have is corroborated by multiple people, you know, accounting for bias and things like that. Um, and we have a number of sections that we've been working on over the last few weeks that reflect that. Yeah, so um, in the beginning of the quarter, I was working on evidence that was not entered into the trials. So I was working on that with Hannah. Ken and Linda Roach driving by that night hear a series of at least 12 to 15 gunshots in four seconds, a four-second span that can't be done by one person with revolvers, which is likely what the shooter or shooters were using. Their, their testimony is corroborated by, even though it wasn't entered into court proceedings, it's corroborated by another witness, Barbara Spencer Tinsley, who was also, you know, she spoke in trial for the prosecution, and she heard shots around the same time that they did. Um, and so what, what's been really interesting about this case is how there's been a lot of pieces of evidence that for, you know, they were either procedurally barred or they were barred for other reasons from entering court proceedings. Um, and in terms of the roaches, that could have been huge for the defense. So I was on the ballistics team, which means that we were going through mountains of evidence collected at the scene. Um, 
And that was an interesting place to start with the investigation because that's probably the most jarring thing about the whole crime scene was you have four people dead in this furniture store and 28 bullet casings found on the scene. So it was this massive either rampage by one person or shoot up by multiple people. And it just kind of went to show again, like you can see from the pictures that it was a big store, but crazy scene. And then when you actually make it, and we marked out the spots of, okay, this is where this person would be, this is where this person would be, this is where the bullets would be, this is where this door is, this is how it would look. And we're like, holy cow, this was a mess. So, so following the ballistics was fascinating because, you know, those details hold the entire case. They also hold nothing because it's too confusing and too overwhelming to even get the details out of it because of the just massive evidence. Um, so following through the ballistics, um, my team also looked into this gunshot wound that um, Tommy Ziegler himself uh, sustained to his torso, which was a very confusing situation because the police had said rather convincingly that he'd shot himself to deflect blame on the case. But then you go through and you say, okay, well, that's not, not really possible, at least in um, the like specific way that it happened. It's a pretty simple question. It's basically, could he, would he have shot himself there? Very simple question, but to establish the veracity of that simple question is pretty complicated. So we started out by gathering all the records we could on the wound itself, medical records, testimony from people who operated on him or saw his wound, to kind of gather enough details that we could then bring to experts to describe to them the wound to get their take on it. So at first we kind of, you know, stumbled our way through some interviews to get some information, but by the end of it we were in a groove where we could call someone up and know how to ask the right questions. And pretty much everybody we talked to was pretty clear on the fact that you just don't shoot yourself there. And even in the way that this particular shot to this region happened, it just wouldn't really make sense that a right-handed person like Tommy really could do this or would do this. So. It, it felt like a good, definitely a good contribution to the case because it's something that is so obvious. This guy was shot, and you'd think a guy shot is presumably the victim of a crime, not the perpetrator. But it hadn't really been brought up all that much in the investigation or a trial. So it feels good that we can kind of shed some light on this pretty obvious, but in some ways kind of complicated question. Edward Williams kind of struck me as a fascinating character from the very beginning because he's not only someone that's at the heart of what's going on, but he's someone that has his own identity and his own questions that come up in his version of events that night. You know, there are several questions that remain in regards to whether or not Edward Williams was telling the truth about whether Tommy Ziegler really threatened him and whether or not Tommy Ziegler was really capable of actually committing these murders. So basically, Sen and I were looking into the validity of not only Edward Williams' statement, but the statements of the witnesses that corroborated his story. So he kind of had an interesting relationship with both this woman named Mary Ellen Stewart, who testified in the trial, and this man named Frank Smith. So her significance is that she was tied to a hot gun transaction indirectly. Um, she said that Ziegler had come up to her and asked to, you know, get in contact with her son-in-law, Frank Smith, about two hot guns that he wanted to purchase. She said that he contacted her directly about this hot gun transaction, but, you know, she didn't really seem to play a role beyond that. But she was also... Um, the person that Edward Williams visited that night after these murders happened. So 
the trial's going on and everyone thinks that Edward Williams and Mary Ellen Stewart are kind of just, you know, casual acquaintances. They don't seem to know very much about each other, you know. So it seems like she has kind of an unbiased opinion in all of this and she could possibly corroborate what had happened and what Edward Williams experienced that night. But there were several questions remaining in regards to how well they actually knew each other. You know, they pretended to be married in order for Mary Ellen Stewart to obtain a mortgage. That by itself kind of highlights, you know, that these two were really connected and that they did have a lot of the same interests. I think our team did an excellent job of targeting the issues that were overlooked during that trial and kind of addressing each piece of evidence or each question that wasn't fully answered. Towards like the middle of the quarter, um, I started like focusing on other things. So um, I, for the draft that we were writing, I was helping with the, I was working on the DNA draft and then working on um, the part about Felton Thomas. So Felton Thomas was a migrant worker who was fruit picking in Florida at the time when around six to seven-ish, whenever it was getting dark, this man, Charlie Mays, pulls up in a van and asks him to go for a ride. And they ride around. He thinks they're going to a liquor store, but Charlie was like, no, I want to pick up a TV for my wife. So they drive to the Ziegler Furniture Store and they're waiting there for someone to arrive and finally a man arrives in a white Cadillac and says let's go test out some guns so they drive to an orange grove shoot some guns and go back to the store pull the light breaker and then jump over the fence to try to break into the back but can't get in so they decide to go back to Tommy Ziegler's house to find a key and get more bullets and then they return to the store go through the front door and at that point Felton Thomas leaves. With the Felton Thomas, that was like a bit more difficult to write because he's given a bunch of accounts over time and there, there's been a bunch of discrepancies. Like before he was saying that Tommy Ziegler told him and Charlie Mays to shoot the guns in Orange Grove. But now then he changed to saying that like, oh, like Tommy Ziegler and Charlie Mays shot the guns in Orange Grove. Like it just evolved over time. And then also like in his most recent accounts, Felton Thomas was like, oh, I didn't touch the guns at all. So, um... Yeah, there's just like a lot of discrepancies. It opens a lot of questions. It's been like going to a time portal every time I go back into the original documents or speak to someone who was there. You read about people, you read, you're like, oh, I just, I would love to talk to them and just pick their brain. But you think, there's no way they're gonna talk to me. There's, there's no way they'd answer that phone. There's no way they'd answer that door. And then you call them and they answer the phone and they actually want to talk to you and you're like, oh my goodness, what do I say? Or you knock on the door and you introduce yourself and they don't slam the door in your face. And then you're, you just have those little, that moment of a little bit of shock, definitely nervous, but then you have this like, okay, well, there we go. I think there's like this moment of euphoria when you finally have found something and you've been looking so desperately for it for so long that when it finally comes up, there's just this unimaginable feeling. You're like, wait, I never knew that 
I could feel this way and it's almost like this adrenaline rush and I mean I was never good at sports as a kid so I guess this is like the first time I've experienced it you know it's like okay this is what it feels like this is scoring the goal you know going through the documents that Brian Davids had that Brian Davids presented to us um going through like Edward Williams's like personal receipts you know stuff like that made the case feel like so real to me and these people feel so real to me anytime I I moved away from from the paper and towards evidence that this is all real, this all really, really happened. These were all very real people, which you could sometimes forget about when you're just like reading trial transcripts on a computer over and over and over, um, were really fascinating moments for me. It's Tommy Ziegler's case. He's the centerpiece of the case. His guilt or innocence is the ultimate question. And yet in a lot of ways, our investigation didn't really feel like we were dealing with a person. It felt like we were dealing with a homicide case, victims, bodies, bullets. But the idea that there was a person there wasn't really something that I was, I guess, focusing on until we actually met him. And then you realize these names of people, where does this guy keep his keys? What guns does he own? Those are questions relating to this human being who's there and been sitting on death row for 40 years. Walking into a prison for the first time was overwhelming. It was like hot outside and we're carrying all our camera equipment in, going through all these gates and like metal detectors and security things. And um, I think when we were walking in, we were a lot more nervous than all the guards, like all the guards thought it was comical that we were nervous going into a prison, especially to interview someone like Tommy, who they don't see as being a threat. But, you know, walking in and having big metal gates closed behind you, like, there's honestly nothing like that. There's no feeling, really, that I've ever felt where I've been like, wow, I'm really, I'm really in a jail right now. And this is really people's lives and how they live every day and stuck within this building. As an investigative reporter, it's important to stay objective for the most part and to look at the facts rather than the feelings. But, you know, meeting someone who you've been reading and gathering all this information and talking about and finally meeting that person and sitting with them, I mean, it has to have an impact on you, and it did. And it also it made me want to figure it out more. A number of people that we've talked to over the last few weeks have also brought up the fact that evidence comes up incrementally. And, you know, based on what I can see, I, I didn't really know this before, but I don't think the criminal justice system, with all of the, the good things that it may provide to society today, will, you know, sometimes, like, fail to account for. Sometimes, you know, you don't have overwhelming evidence all at one burst that you can present, especially when a man's life is on the line. Sometimes it comes in spurts, and sometimes it comes, you know, 40 years later, if someone decides to talk to someone else about what they experienced on the night of the events. And I realized that that's where journalism really stands in. It stands in to um, provide a voice for people who may not have been heard or may have been refused to be heard. I think there is like a misconception of what justice programs like this do and that their sole purpose is to get people out of jail. And I, I don't think that's the case here. I Coming in, I think Alec made it very clear in, in all our papers and everything, it made it very clear that we're not here to get Tommy out of jail. We don't know if he did it, we don't know if he didn't. Um, and we're not trying to accuse anyone else of doing it. 
and we're not trying to throw anyone else under the bus in the process of doing this investigation. Throughout this whole process, I really tried to think about Tommy Ziegler's case in a way that puts the truth above anything else rather than whether or not he's guilty or not guilty. And at this point, I don't even know. You know, I can't really say if he's guilty or not. I just have no idea. But I do know that things were overlooked in the trial that we should probably go back and re-examine. So if someone is willing to go back and do that, that's good enough for me. You know, I, I don't think it really set in for me that we would be publishing or writing a story at the end of all of this. I think there are so many questions raised that um, it, it, in your heart kind of swings, you know, from one end to the other, you know, he did it, he didn't do it, you know, this information says this, or it doesn't say that. Um, it's, it's a new, it's a new feeling, it's a new way of thinking about things. It's been very rewarding, I think, to, to be given the opportunity to chime in, not as my own voice as an individual, but as kind of the, the composite voice of all the people that we've talked to over the last 10 weeks and just sharing that information with the public. It just, it's very meaningful to me. I expected the level of work and, you know, thoroughness in reporting, so I knew it'd be, it'd be a lot going into it, and that's definitely what we got. I don't think I expected to get as personally invested in the whole process as I did. I had gone in thinking, oh, this would be a really cool class and a really cool experience, but I didn't think like, oh, like, Tommy Ziegler's case is going to be on my mind often throughout my day, throughout my week. So in that sense, like expectations about kind of the impact of the class were exceeded, I'd say. I came in definitely hearing that there was going to be a lot of work in this class and that it's a great opportunity. You just don't realize the level of detail and specificity and expertise you need to reach in all these fields. I mean, seeing how much the ballistics team, let alone, you know, all of us in the class, I didn't know anything about ballistics or a revolver versus a semi-automatic gun. That's just so distant from anything I've ever grown up with. And so just the level of expertise we've had to reach and nuances of the case that we've had to understand and detail we've had to master, I've been really impressed with everyone. And I think I've even been shocked with like how much information I could retain myself. That's been a really cool thing. And I think that as a journalist, I've in the past, maybe just kind of been happy just knowing the bare details of something and as long as I can get a cohesive story together. But now I realize that's not enough. You have to ask why, exactly when, how do you know that, confirm this, get that, call this person. And so that's been like an invaluable skill that I've learned in this class and I think that'll really take me, take me places as an investigative journalist. I didn't know anything about DNI because that was not my major, that was not my interest and and now I, I can say I am expert <laughs> in Dutch DNA. Two months ago, I came from Iran to US. And um, when I was in Iran, um, I, I was um, familiar with this project. The sentence in the, in the MJP invitation, uh, the, that was uh, we want to be voice for voiceless people. And that was very interesting for me because you know that jail is not a, is not a word for me. When, you, when somebody is talking about jail, my memorial from jail, and many passions come to my, uh, my mind uh, because I was in jail and um, particularly uh, when uh, accused person 
said that I am uh, I am innocent. It is very important for me. That was very important for me because I was um, I was innocent in jail. The first week uh, came to U.S. and come and stand in this in this class <laughs> was was wonderful and difficult. Of course, that was difficult. I don't think I've even really begun to process what this experience has been like for me. There's been so much. It's been kind of like we hit the ground running and have been running since like week one. I think what's most important about a, a story like this is that people understand what happened honestly, what happened truthfully, and that people can think about that and move forward with it because there's a man on death row who hasn't been allowed to move forward with his life since Christmas Eve 1975. I was thinking I would come away from this with more answers. This case I felt has been so murky and there's so much that is hidden from us and there's so much truth that we can't access that I don't feel that sense of victory, um, which is okay because it's not about us. You know, it's about finding the truth as Alec always says. And I think we did reach a new level of truth, but um, it has heightened and fortified my desire to continue to be skeptical, continue to ask questions, and continue to reserve judgment. Even now, I'm still reserving judgment until the very end, and maybe there's no satisfying conclusions in journalism, and maybe there's no satisfying conclusions in life, and like maybe that shouldn't be surprising, and maybe that's okay. I don't think it's even completely clear why everything happened to Tommy the way that it did. I think that would be a lifelong project. But I think with the little bit that we have learned in this class, I think it, it raises some important questions that I'll definitely keep looking out for for probably the rest of my life.